0: Uh, I don't have to tell you that in our culture, we are drowning in a sea of our own sexual perversions. We live in a sexually confused and depraved culture. Just consider our pop culture, TV shows, movies, song lyrics. Would it be going too far to say that they're sexually suggestive at times? Is that, is that true? Yeah, I think that's true. We all know that's true. Sometimes a lot more than just sexually suggestive. Uh, we are surrounded by sexual imagery, uh, things that are uh, designed to provoke us sexually. Uh, we live in a culture that is sexually chaotic and sexually confused. Uh, we live in what you could call a pornographic culture. Pornography is widespread. Uh, Pornography destroys both men and women, but it especially addicts and enslaves men. It's been called rightfully, I think, Satan's Bible. God has his Bible. Satan has his Bible. Satan's Bible is pornography. And pornography is a man-killer because it emasculates men. It pours gasoline on the fires of our already dangerous lusts. And we men know this. Porn doesn't just distort a man's sexuality, it distorts his whole sense of self. It crushes his drive and ambition. Guys, think of it this way. You're Samson, growing to be a strong man. Pornography is Delilah cutting your hair, leaving you weak and ashamed. It saps your masculine strength and energy. It leaves you weak and depressed. But it's not just pornography and the sexual images and language that constantly confronts us in pop culture. There's abortion, which is very much the product of our sexual lawlessness, the murdering of innocent life in the womb. Now, we hear a claim today it is a woman's right. It's presented to us as a form of death care. I'm sorry, of, of health care, when really it's a form of death care because it's deadly for the baby. There's no health care there. And actually, it's very unhealthy for the mother as well. Uh, Mothers who abort their babies bear the scars of abortion, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, All of you are probably too young to have been alive when 9-11 happened. I'm guessing pretty much all of you were born after 9-11, but you've grown up in the shadow of 9-11, and you know what a big deal 9-11 was, and you know how we fought wars because of 9-11. Well, here's the thing. Think about how many people died in 9-11, just as many babies are aborted every day as who died on 9-11. There is a 9-11 type massacre in this country every single day. Then there's gay marriage, which makes a mockery out of true marriage. I want to say gay marriage in scare quotes because it's not really marriage. God has defined marriage, created marriage, ordained marriage. It is what God says it is, but we're making a mockery of God's ordinance, God's institution of marriage with Gay marriage, same-sex marriage. There is the LGBT plus rights movement with its pride parades, like those going on this month in the streets of big cities. It's attempts to persecute Christians who won't play along. Uh, We've seen, as I mentioned earlier, numerous corporations that have changed their logo to the rainbow this month, and it's not because they're celebrating God's covenant with Noah. It's because they're jumping on board with this sodomite agenda. All these perversions and many, many more have been normalized in our culture. And if you criticize them, you put a target on your back. You'll be considered bigoted or hateful. Here's the situation we find ourselves in. If you believe and want to practice the kind of sexuality God describes in his word, if you want to live according to God's design for sex, for marriage, for manhood, for womanhood, this is a very challenging time to be alive. I especially tonight want to address the challenges men face. So guys, I'm going to speak to you. I know you're you're between ages 13 and 18. You're coming of age. You're moving from boyhood into manhood, and you're at various places along that that spectrum of transition from boyhood to manhood. But tonight, I'm treating you all as men. This is a man-to-man talk, and you ladies get to listen in on it. I think it's helpful for you to listen in on it. But this is for the men. I want to Focus squarely on the challenges we face. If ever there was a time for us to man up, this is it. We need to understand what manhood is all about. You need to strive. Guys, you need to strive to be a good man. You also need to strive to be good at being a man. And you'll see there's something that brings those two together. You'll see what I mean by that uh, as we go tonight. I want to read a couple texts for us. First from 1 Kings chapter 2. These are David's final words. David is on his deathbed, and he speaks to his son Solomon. These are his words to Solomon, his final words. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth, be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And then I also want to read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. But one thing you need to understand about the letter of 1 Corinthians, maybe you haven't noticed this, the letter is addressed to the brothers. Again and again, Paul says, brothers, and he speaks to his brothers. The whole letter is addressed to the Christian men in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians is a man-to-man letter. Paul's writing to the brothers, to the men in the church. So this is one of his final exhortations to the Christian men in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, act like men, be strong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you ask that you would speak to us through your word that we might understand your design for us as men and women. Father, I especially ask that you would speak to these young men gathered here tonight that you might impress upon them the importance of living according to your word, living according to your will, living according to your design for sex, for sexuality, for marriage and family life. Father, would you give us your grace through Christ your Son and your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So I'm speaking about manhood, manhood in Christ. And as I said, this is for the guys, but it's not really just for the guys. You girls need to listen in because you need to understand this as well. Just like tomorrow when I'm speaking primarily to the ladies for a good bit of my talk, you young men need to listen in as well. It's helpful for us to understand what God calls the opposite sex to do and be. It's important for us to understand what God wants the opposite sex to be. We better understand ourselves that way. And, of course, we also know what to look for in a spouse. We can better understand uh, the opposite sex this way. So let me start here. What does it mean to be a man? That's the most basic question of all, right? What is manhood? When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, when he tells his brothers in Corinth, act like men, what does he mean? Manhood or masculinity has been under attack for quite some time in our culture. You're probably aware of that. How many of you have heard the phrase toxic masculinity? Toxic masculinity. That's just become a part of our cultural vocabulary, has it not? It's become very common for people in our culture in general, but especially those who would identify as feminists or as social justice warriors, to describe manhood in very negative terms, to see masculinity as a threat. Manhood has been pathologized. It's treated like a disease. And I think there are all kinds of myths and misunderstandings that drive this view that manhood is toxic, Uh, Just back in January, the American Psychological Association declared traditional masculinity harmful. They said, quote, traditional masculinity is psychologically harmful. But if we're going to be old-fashioned, cutting-edge Christians, old-fashioned, cutting-edge men, Christian men, then we've got to ask, what does God and his word say about that? Can something like traditional manhood be defended from God's word? Now, I do not doubt there have been and are many toxic men. There is such a thing as toxic masculinity today. There has been in the past. Abusive men, selfish men, wicked men, uh, wickedly violent men. There is such a thing as toxic masculinity. Hear me on that. And it should be rejected. But there's something else going on in our culture that you need to understand. The attack here is not just on men who use their masculine power, their masculine traits in abusive ways. No, this is an attack on all men, even good men. It's an attack on manhood. I'll just put it this way. Feminism feminism has been waging a war on men for quite some time. Now, feminists will say the reason they're doing this is because for a really long time, men waged a war on women, and they're just trying to even things out. Uh, The feminist arguments, they've got a number of different things they'll bring forward. Maybe some of these you've heard of, maybe some you haven't, But I just want to throw a few of these out. There's what I would call the myth of patriarchal oppression. Feminists will say that men have oppressed women all throughout history, that men had life pretty easy, and for women it was really, really hard. And modern day feminism then represents the efforts of women to bring equality. But that whole narrative is false. And actually, this is another one of those places where Jordan Peterson is really quite good. Again, I don't doubt you can find many examples of men in the past and today who mistreated women. I mean, certainly over the centuries that happened. Certainly in ancient pagan cultures that happened in a widespread kind of way. You can find all kinds of examples of that. But the reality is both men and women, for most of human history, had very hard lives. Again, it's not as if men had it easy and women had it hard. Life was really hard for men and women. And you can look at particular hardships that afflicted women and particular hardships that afflicted men, and maybe you could try to compare them. But the reality is for most people, life in general was difficult. For most of history, men and women had to cooperate and work together just to survive in a world full of hardship, scarcity, disease, and suffering so Jordan Peterson says, to say that men in general have tyrannized women in general for centuries is a terrible thing to tell our young men, burdening them with a guilt that isn't theirs, but it's also a terrible thing to tell our young women, putting a, a chip on their shoulders, making them uh, oppose men or be suspicious of men unnecessarily. Now, feminists will try to point to examples and say, well, yes, but uh, for most of history, men have had all the political power. And that's true. Up until very recently, politics was dominated by men. But you know why that was the case up until very recently? It was because to be a political ruler or a civil ruler was totally intertwined with being a military leader, and men were better in combat... You wanted a man to lead your troops into battle. And so, of course, men were the civil leaders, the political leaders, because it was intertwined with being a military leader today. Even today, our president uh, is really the commander-in-chief. We don't do a whole lot with that. He's not actually out there on the battlefield. But that's the tradition. So that's why men were dominant uh, politically, because it was tied in with, military, uh, with, with service in the military. But again, feminists will claim that even today, our society oppresses women. Uh, We have all kinds of inequalities that must be rectified, usually using the power of the state to rectify those inequalities. Feminists will say, men own more wealth than women, more capital. And that's true, technically speaking, but it overlooks the fact that women spend more money than men. I would guess it's that way in your house, and for most of you, that's probably the kind of family you grew up in. Dad made more money, mom spent more money, and I bet if you thought long and hard about why that is the case, you could figure it out. But we shouldn't just assume that this is some kind of great injustice. Feminists will say that women make 77 cents on the dollar compared to men. They call this the gender pay gap, and this, I think, is going to be a big political issue in the 2020 presidential election. Now I just want you to think about this from an economic standpoint. If a company could actually get exactly the same job done by a woman as a man for 77 cents on the dollar, all a company would have to do is hire all women, and it could put all of its competitors out of business. Because that's how you put your competitors out of business in a free market economy. As you lower your prices, then people buy more of what you're selling. But this, this is a myth, this is simply not true. There are some differences in male and female income. But actually, if you look more closely at this, the reason for those differences in salary or in income have everything to do with lifestyle choices and career choices that men and women make. And so just to give you an example, men are usually willing to work longer hours than women. Women more often only want to work part time. Uh, men will pursue different courses of study, different, they'll make different career choices, usually willing to uh, put in extra years of schooling, say to specialize, whereas women choose not to do that. And again, if you thought long and hard, you might figure out why women wouldn't want to make those choices, why women might prefer to work part-time instead of full-time or not as long hours as men work. I'll even talk about that a little bit tomorrow. Uh, But actually, when you start to control for all these other factors, there really is no gender pay gap, certainly not one based on some kind of discrimination or bias against women. You know what there is, though? There is a gender death gap. Ninety-five percent of all work-related deaths happen to men. Now, I've never heard a feminist argue that that should be equalized. But again, I think if you thought about it really hard... You could probably figure out why this is the case, why men do the difficult, dirty, and yes, dangerous jobs that women don't want to do and frankly should not be made to do, should not be asked to do. Men are just better suited to do that kind of work. Today in public schools, and I'd say even in many Christian schools, things are set up really to favor girls over boys. Boys are treated as defective girls. Uh, boys are, 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 are trained in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways to suppress their masculinity in order to fit into the school environment. And given those realities, it's not surprising that a lot of boys don't really feel at home in school, and girls up end, up, end up outperforming them. And so today, we've got more women in college and in graduate school than men. And that has huge social implications that hardly anybody's really thinking through but more women are in college, more women are in graduate school than men. Men are more likely to commit suicide than women. Men are more likely to be homeless. There are far more men in prison than women. Where's the patriarchal oppression? If anything, if you start to look at all of these factors, all these features of our society, you might say, you know, the women are really doing a lot better than the men. It seems like the women have pulled ahead and the, women, and the men are lagging behind. But still, this myth of male tyranny over women, this myth of patriarchal oppression persists. Well consider this, this is much more anecdotal, uh, but it's still, I, I find this interesting. I just came across this article uh, a few weeks ago. Someone investigated t-shirts that were sold, that were marketed for young boys and for young girls, and the kind of messaging found on those t-shirts. And the messaging uh, for boys and girls is very, very different. The things that are encouraged in boys and girls are very, very different. So you're not going to be able to see this, but this is the article and it's got pictures of all these different shirts. And so shirts for the girls say things like future leader, and it says queen down below. Or there's one that says girls are, and then it lists all these things that girls are, like smart, kind, leaders, epic. Okay, There's one that says girl boss. Okay, uh, But then you go to the shirts for the boys, and you've got... Uh, messages like this. Permanent weekend. I don't know. I don't care. I got nothing done today. Five symptoms of laziness, and it just has a one with a blank and a two and a blank, and the boy is obviously too lazy to even write out the numbers, all right? The message being sent here is that girls are capable. Girls are going to be the future leaders. Girls are being prepped to run things in the future, girls have got this very positive outlook, this high self-esteem message they're being pumped up with, whereas boys, the message being communicated to boys is, look, you know what, Uh, for you, life is just about having fun, maybe playing video games, but you don't really have to take life that seriously. You're probably not going to amount to anything or accomplish anything anyway. And it's been pointed out that this is really a form of reverse sexism. Now you could say, oh, this is not really a big deal. This is just t-shirts. And I agree, it's really not a big deal. I don't think the t-shirts are, are really a huge deal. Uh, and maybe some of them are, but in general, I mean, we don't have to make too big a deal out of that. But the reality is this is part of the messaging that goes on constantly in our culture. It's not just the t-shirts. It's in TV shows and movies constantly. Females are presented as capable and competent. Males are presented as doofuses. Unless they're gay, in which they're also presented as having brilliant insights into everything. You know, that's kind of the one exception. The gay man can be insightful and brilliant. In the current feminist narrative, men can't win. If women do something better than men, it's a sign of their superiority over men. If men do something better than women, it's a sign of discrimination against women. Men have been beat down so much, many men are embarrassed by manhood. They don't even want to be masculine anymore. I just saw an article that came out today that had surveyed men in the U.S. and in the U.K. and asked men, do you see yourself as fully masculine or a mix of masculine and feminine or fully feminine? And for the older guys, like men over 65, the vast, vast, vast majority of them said completely masculine. That's how they identified. For the younger generation, people just slightly older than you, only 2% of those men surveyed were willing to say, I'm completely masculine. 14% said they were completely feminine. More men think of themselves as feminine than they do as masculine now. Okay, and even if you say, well, that's, you know, I don't know about that. That is happening in our culture, whatever the exact statistics are, that is happening in our culture. Men are being beaten down. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in our culture today, it is bad to be a man That's the message. But Scripture gives a very different message. God in His Word gives a very different message. God in His Word says it is very good to be a man. When God created man in the beginning, He said, in effect, it's very good to be a man. But again, we have to ask this question, what is manhood? What does it mean to be a man? What is specifically good about manhood? What do men bring to the human race? What do they have to offer that women don't? What is the meaning of manhood? Well, in Genesis 1, we learn about the creation of man and woman. And we learn that both man and woman are made in God's image. Men and women are equal as image bearers. But men and women image God in profoundly different ways. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote a poem about this. I'll share this with you. He said, if I set the sun beside the moon and the land beside the sea and the flower beside the fruit and the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. All those pairs that Chesterton gives, they're certainly different from one another, But it doesn't make any sense to say one is better than the other. They each have their own glory. And that's how it is with men and women. We're equal but different. We each have our own distinctive and unique glory. Men and women are designed for an obvious division of labor to complement one another. Our strengths and our weaknesses match up. So we compensate for one another and complete one another. Now, here's the thing. The differences between men and women used to be matters of common sense. They were so obvious, nobody argued about them. It was just obvious how men and women were different. That's not the case anymore. We live in a culture that has lost common sense. We live in a culture that promotes effeminacy and androgyny for men. And those are big words. Let me explain those real briefly. These are forms of sexual confusion. Uh, Androgyny is a way of diminishing differences between men and women so that basically men and women are sexless, so that all the differences between the sexes are denied. If you hear people talk about being gender neutral or gender fluidity, that's androgyny. If you see someone and you can't tell if this is a man or a woman, that's androgyny. Effeminacy is when men are not very good at being men because they reject what is specifically manly. Effeminacy is when men become womanly. Now there's nothing wrong with a woman being womanly, that's her own glory, but there's something very wrong with a man who is womanly. When a man is effeminate. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 it gives a list of various forms of sin that will keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God. Effeminacy is there. The effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is how Greg Morse describes effeminacy. He says, traditionally effeminacy entailed moral frailty, that is, acting cowardly or especially womanish in battle. It included inordinate love for luxury, rendering men delicate and tender. And it included sexual deviancy, the sexual deviancy of acting like a woman in one's demeanor, speech, and gesture says the Bible addresses each of these, describing men who become women on the battlefield in Jeremiah 50, men who go soft due to luxury in Matthew chapter 11, and men who become sexually deviant in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. The term effeminacy, he says, is not an attack on femininity itself, which is a woman's glory, again, but rather on femininity when attached to a man, to a male. Men ought not to be effeminate. A man should be masculine. There are other passages that describe the same reality uh, in Scripture. Passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where feminacy uh, is connected with hair length. Men should have shorter hair than women. Paul says even nature teaches you this. Or Deuteronomy chapter 23, where uh, you see a feminacy connected with clothing. A man ought not to wear a woman's clothes and vice versa. That wouldn't be a feminacy in that case, but a form of transvestism. But if a man wears a woman's clothes, he's acting in an effeminate way. So you see the point here. Men should act and dress like men. Women should act and dress like women. The real problem in our culture is not toxic masculinity. I mean, I admit that is a problem. But the real problem, the huge crisis we face, is not toxic masculinity. It's toxic effeminacy. Men who are soft. Men who are not very good at being men. Men who lack manliness. Men who don't obey 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Men who refuse to act as men. Men who refuse to be men. Guys, do any of you know Rudyard Kipling's poem, If? Any of you know that that poem? Okay, that poem, and I, I wish I could take the time to read it to you and go through it with you. If you want to get together and talk about it and go through it, I'd love to do that with you at, at another time. I don't have time in this talk to do that. But it is a wonderful description of the qualities of manhood. It's a wonderful description of what manhood is all about. And one of the things that I love about its description of manhood is that it's so earthy. One of the problems, one of the biggest problems we have in the church when we discuss manhood is we tend to over-spiritualize manhood. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. Men should be spiritual in the sense of being filled with the Holy Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. But manhood is intensely practical. It's hands-on. It's earthy. There's something intensely practical and earthy about manhood. And I think you see this really if you go back again to Genesis. I talked about Genesis 1. Let me talk about Genesis 2 a little bit because there we have more of a sort of slow-motion account, uh, a more detailed account of how God made the man and the woman. And in this more detailed account, uh, we find that man and woman were not created at the same time. We wouldn't know that just from Genesis 1. The man was created first and then the woman. And that's a really big deal that we believe that to be a historical fact, which, of course, does away with any kind of evolutionary view of human origins. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, just to give you an example of this, Paul bases his argument that teachers and leaders, teachers and authority figures in the church should be men, on this fact that the man was created first. It hinges on that historical detail. Now, explaining all that in 1 Timothy 2, that'd be another sermon. I'm not going to go into that here. But in Genesis chapter 2, we find the man is made first, and the man is made from the earth, which means he is oriented towards the earth to work and develop and rule over the earth. His origin explains his nature. And after the man was created, but before the woman was created, God gave the man a mission and a prohibition. And it's so crucial to see this, the sequence. In Genesis 2.15, God gives the man his mission, which is to guard and keep the Garden of Eden. This is priestly work. That's, it's, this is priestly language later on in Scripture used of the priests who would guard the tabernacle. So the garden's kind of like a tabernacle, a sanctuary. Adam is a priest, and his work is to guard and keep the garden. He's made from the earth. He's going to work the earth. And then in Genesis 2.17, God gives him his prohibition to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that language of knowing or judging good and evil elsewhere in Scripture is kingly. Kings make judgments about good and evil. So it's a sacramental tree. It's a sacramental meal. And if and when Adam eats of it, he's going to be promoted in status to a full king, to a higher rank of kingship. But he needs to wait until God gives him the green light, until God says, okay, now you're ready to eat of that tree. Then Adam will be able to partake of that tree and be elevated to this higher level of kingship. He's given a mission and a prohibition. Now, guys, understand this. It's so important to note this. Adam was given a job before he was given a wife. Okay, I guess most of your parents uh, would want you to tap the brakes on any kind of serious relationship in high school you know at the age you're at right now. This would be one reason why, because for you guys, a real job is still a long way off. You haven't yet figured out your mission in life, most likely. The pattern of Genesis 2 shows us a man needs to know his calling. He needs to know his mission before he can go get a wife. There are some guys who are out there chasing girls when they should be chasing a vocation. They're chasing a girl when they ought to be chasing a job. Don't chase girls. Chase excellence. And once you have Learn to craft, once you've started to, to figure out your mission in life, a, a way that you could provide for a wife, then you can go find that woman of your dreams. I mean, you may have her picked out before that, but that's when you can really go and find her. And in the meantime, let the thought of finding her inspire you. Let it inspire you to prepare yourself to be her provider. Let it inspire you to work hard, to learn the skills you need, to make yourself valuable to others. So you can provide a life for her. Now, this is one of the things effeminate men are missing. Effeminate men don't have a mission. And that's why they're soft and lazy. They're not driven. They don't have ambition. They're passive. They don't take responsibility for themselves, much less others. They're snowflakes. Effeminate men are soft and lazy. They don't have a mission driving them. Guys, understand, the mission comes first, and then the woman Figure out God's mission for you in life. And let me let you in on a little secret here, guys. In the long run, girls are going to be most attracted to guys who have a mission in life. They're going to be most attracted to a man who is confident and confident because he's developed the skills and the work ethic to provide for her. He's passionate about something other than video games and sports teams. He's developed a vision for the kind of life he's going to lead. Men, this is what you need to be doing in these years. Develop the right kind of drive and ambition. Figure out what your mission in life is. Figure out your Garden of Eden that God wants you to keep and to guard. That's what a woman's going to be drawn to, ultimately. Go build a life a woman would want to be a part of and then invite her into it as your helper, And if you're thinking, well, I don't know if I can wait that long. You know, the the job I want to pursue, the mission I want to pursue requires college and a bunch of years of graduate school or professional school. Okay, well, look, at least have a clear direction in life so she can marry you based on your potential. Okay, let's at least say that. She can't follow you if you're not going anywhere. Men, you are built to lead a woman. And so do the work that will fit you for leadership. You were made to provide for a woman. Do the work that will enable you to do that. Proverbs twenty four twenty seven is so helpful here. Such sound counsel for young men. Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. Figure out your work. Figure out your calling. And then build your house. So men, it's mission before marriage. That was the pattern for Adam. Now men, understand you were made for dominion. You were made to dominate some area of life. Genesis describes this in what is usually called the dominion mandate, to have dominion and rule over the earth. And then in Genesis 2, we see that as keeping and guarding the garden. Your work, your mission, is how you fulfill that mandate. See, men are builders. We are creators. Adam was to take the garden God planted in Eden, and he was to cultivate it and develop it and make it better and better and ultimately turn that garden into a city, turn that garden into a civilization. Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible starts with the Garden of Eden, but by Revelation 21 and 22, the garden has been transformed into a garden city. Eden has become the new Jerusalem. Men do that. Men do this. They turn Edens into Jerusalems. And ladies, I'll just tell you here for just a minute, you need to appreciate this aspect of men. You need to appreciate this civilization building aspect of manhood. Appreciate that men are civilization builders. Show gratitude to men because they built this comfortable world we all live in now. This is one of those myths and lies that feminists tell, that women no longer depend on men. Feminists have even argued that men are obsolete. That's how one woman puts it. And this woman, I'm going to read to you here her quote. She, She actually would identify as a feminist, but she's a rather unique one, because she sees the contributions that men have made. This is what she says. She says, men are still absolutely indispensable, though they are usually invisible to most feminists who seem blind to the infrastructure that makes their own work lives possible. It is overwhelmingly men who do the dirty, dangerous work of building roads, pouring concrete, laying bricks, tarring roofs, hanging electric wires, excavating natural gas and sewage lines, cutting and clearing trees, and bulldozing the landscape for housing developments. It is men who heft and wit- weld the giant steel beams that frame out our office buildings. and It is men who do the hair-raising work of insetting and sealing the finely tempered plate glass windows of skyscrapers 50 stories tall. Every day along the Delaware River in Philadelphia, one can watch the passage of vast oil tankers and towering cargo ships arriving from all over the world. These stately colossi are loaded, steered, and offloaded by men. The modern economy, with its vast production and distribution network, is a male epic in which, yes, women have found a productive role, but women were not its author. Surely modern women are strong enough now to give credit where credit is due. That's a feminist who's finally recognizing the truth that men are the builders of civilization. Here's another woman. This is a Christian woman. I'll just read to you what she says. Our homes were built by men. The factories where our clothing is made was built by men, and so are the machines that made the clothing. Men have made it so good for women that women think they don't need them any longer. They can leave their homes all day, work for a boss, and get a paycheck. They are... are, They say they are strong, independent, and freed from needing a man in their lives. Many mothers today are teaching their daughters they don't need men. They're wrong. They're wrong. Men are the builders of civilization. And this is something that I think uh, women ought to appreciate. It's something men need to understand and recognize about themselves. Without men, cities don't get built. Without men, civilizations don't get built. If men go into hiding and don't do their job, our cities will crumble. Our civilizations will crumble. So guys, figure out the role you're going to play in building a godly civilization. What role are you going to play in building the kingdom of God? What mission is God giving to you in life? Figure out your role in the world. Where does God want you to take dominion? What garden does God want you to cultivate? See, men, you were made to dominate, to to dominate some little piece of Eden. So figure out what it is and go do it. Now, don't confuse this dominion or this dominance with being domineering. Okay, I want to throw this in here because I don't want to be misunderstood. Sometimes men, especially insecure men, will become domineering towards other people, especially towards women, and they'll become tyrannical and bossy and, yes, perhaps abusive. But, again, that's not manhood. That's immature. That's not masculine. That's not dominion. Dominion is not dominance over people. It's dominance over a piece of creation. It's dominance over a piece of culture, a piece of culture God calls you to rule and to cultivate. So maybe you'll be a doctor, maybe you'll be a, a, a carpenter, maybe you'll be an accountant or a mechanic. There is some area where God wants you to go and be dominant. There's some Eden where God wants you to go and rule, some realm where God wants you to go rule. Figure out what it is and go do it. Now consider again the Genesis narrative. The man was to guard and keep the garden. He was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is still before the woman is created. God brings the animals to him, and he names them, but he doesn't find among them a helper or a companion suitable for himself. And so God puts him into a deep sleep. It's kind of a death and resurrection experience for Adam. And as he's sleeping, God forms the woman out of his side. Like the man, the woman's origin shows her orientation. She's formed from the man to be his helper to live under his authority as his equal partner different from him but completing him helping him following him that's her role the man's made from the dirt so he's oriented towards the dirt okay why do little boys like to play in the dirt because man was made from the dirt okay the woman is made from the man and so she's oriented to the man but she's to be in submission to the man. Submission, right? That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5 in marriage. It's submission is the woman's role. Well, I just talked about the man's mission. What does it mean to be in submission? Well, sub means under. It means when a woman marries a man, she comes under his mission and helps him to fulfill it. That's why a man's got to have a mission first. She can't submit. She can't be in submission unless he has a mission, So he's oriented towards his work. She's oriented towards him. But then what happens in Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis 3, it all goes wrong. That original pattern that God set up is destroyed. The original pattern of authority looked like this. God is the head of humanity and all of creation within mankind. Man is the head of the woman, his wife. And together, they're to be head over the lower creation, the animals, the earth. But in the fall, in Genesis 3, that whole hierarchy gets reversed. The woman listened to or submitted to the serpent. She got on board with the serpent's mission. The husband listened to or submitted to his wife. There's this role reversal. And the whole creation then is thrown into chaos and into rebellion against God and the order he ordained. Remember, in the beginning, the man was to be a priestly guardian. He was to guard The garden, he was to guard the sanctuary. But what do we find in Genesis 3? Who enters the sanctuary in Genesis 3? This satanic serpent gets inside the garden that Adam was supposed to guard. There's this diabolical intruder, and the serpent begins speaking lies to the woman. And what does Adam do? Genesis 3 tells us he stood by and watched as his wife was deceived by the serpent and ate of the forbidden fruit. Now, what should Adam have done as the guardian of the garden? What should he have done to the serpent? Killed it. He should have crushed the serpent's head. He should have stopped on the serpent, right? He was to be her provider by working the earth, but he was also to be her protector by destroying the serpent. He was to be her guardian. He was to guard her. You know, guard her from what? Well, guard her from the serpent, for starters. But he didn't do it. He was to be her protector and provider. You know, protect and provide. That's the mantra of manhood. But he fails. He fails to be her protector. He fails to guard her. He fails to guard the garden. You know, Christians are always asking, what was the original sin? What really prompted the sin of, uh, that, that, that takes place there in Genesis chapter 3? And some will say, oh, well, obviously it was pride. Or it was idolatry, you know, turning away from God. Or it was theft, even, because they stole the apple that didn't belong to them, the the fruit of the tree that didn't belong to them. And all those are good answers in their own way, but I want to put it to you like this. What was the original sin in Genesis chapter 3? It was the sin of effeminacy. Why will the effeminate not inherit the kingdom of God? Because effeminacy is what brought sin and death into the world in the beginning. Adam's failure was a failure of manhood. The fall is a failure of manhood. The fall, the story of the fall, is the story of a man who failed to be a man, failed to be a good man. He failed at being a man. He didn't do what Paul says to do in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, act like a man. Adam failed to man up in the garden. He didn't act like a man in the garden. He became effeminate. Adam failed as a man, and that's why the fall happened. He failed to protect her. He failed to be a man, to act as a man. Let me take this one step further, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you right here, I'm sharing this with you because I trust you. I wouldn't say this to just any audience because it could be misunderstood and twisted. Okay? So you're getting kind of the inside stuff here, but you cannot quote me out of context. Okay? So understand that. Go one step further. The fall, the original sin, is the sin of effeminacy. Go one step further. The fall was due to a failure, to the failure of a man to exert godly violence against a deadly enemy. The fall was due to the failure of a man to exert godly violence against a deadly enemy. The fall was a failure to be violent. A man failed to be violent when he should have been violent. Adam became a pacifist. Now, again, don't take me out of context here. I'm I'm, I'm trusting you with this. But understand, this means violence is intrinsic to manhood. To be a man means you have to be willing to fight. You have to be capable and willing to fight. Even to exert violence on behalf of others under your care if the situation requires it. Men, we are the fighters. We are the guardians. We are the warriors. This is, if you want to point to another perversion in our culture, this is why women in combat is such a travesty. Because men are the guardians. Men are the fighters. The fall was a failure of manhood at just this point, a failure to fight. George Orwell or somebody, I don't don't think anybody really knows exactly who said it, but sometime after World War II, someone made the comment, people sleep peacefully in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. That is an aspect of manhood, an integral aspect of manhood. Being willing to sacrifice yourself to act in the defense of others, to fight on behalf of others. Adam failed to be that kind of man. He failed to be that man who would do violence to protect his wife, and so he failed at being a man. Again, don't misunderstand me. Men should never resort to violence unless they absolutely have to in cases of clear self-defense, or a just war, okay? In a fallen world, we mostly see the wrong kind of violence, wicked violence. A true man is going to seek out a peaceful solution, if at all possible. But a true man, a real man, will also do what is required to defend those he's called to protect. In a fallen world, most violence is wicked, and we have to, res- we have to resist the temptation to resort to wicked violence. You know, when men act in wicked violence, they're actually also denying their manhood. That's a denial of manhood just as much as becoming a pacifist is a denial of manhood. But understand, part of being a man is being a protector and a warrior, and sometimes that means violence. And you know this. Why do young men, they get us to a certain age, and they want to start getting physically stronger, you know, a lot of men uh, want to learn how to use a firearm or some other kind of weapon. Why do men have this impulse? Well, I'm not saying that you, you know, if you don't lift weights or if you don't learn how to shoot a gun that you're not a real man. But I, I certainly think those are examples, among many of examples we could give, those are examples of how men can embrace this role of being defender and protector. There are other ways to do that, but these are certainly among them. And I'll just tell you, when you get older and you can't fight as well, uh, your physical strength starts to diminish. A man starts to rely on his intellectual strength. Brains replace brawn. It becomes his wisdom rather than his physical abilities that he uses to defend those he cares about. And I think Proverbs recognizes Proverbs twenty twenty nine: The glory of a young man is his strength. The glory of an old man is his wisdom. The model for manhood is always Jesus. Adam became effeminate, he failed, and so God sent a new Adam, a second Adam, and Jesus shows us what true manhood really is. Think about Jesus for just a minute. Yes, he is the Prince of Peace. He was a peacemaker. He was not given to violence regularly, but he could get physical when required. And so we see him flipping over the tables in the temple. In 70 A.D., he uses the Roman armies as his instrument to violently destroy the Jewish rebellion, just as he had prophesied. In Revelation, Jesus is depicted as a warrior going forth, conquering, and to conquer with a sword coming forth from his mouth and his garment stained with the blood of his enemies. Read the imprecatory Psalms, like Psalm 109. Read them as the prayers of Jesus, because that's what they are, and you will see Jesus is very much a warrior, a fighter, a protector. Jesus is no buttercup. There's nothing effeminate about Jesus, modern Jesus art to the contrary. A lot of effeminate art, a lot of art, Jesus art, depicts him in a pretty effeminate way. It's not true. Now, one last point here. After the woman ate the fruit, and before Adam ate it, he had a choice to make. You know, think about that situation right there. She's eating the fruit. He is not yet. He could have waited for God to come. And when God arrived, he could have said, God, my wife has sinned. I know she deserves death. And I know I failed to guard the garden as I should have. My wife has sinned against you by eating of the forbidden tree. She deserves punishment, but punish me instead kill me instead of her. I haven't eaten of the tree, but I'm her head, so I am responsible for what she did. That would have been the manly thing for Adam to do, a way of caring for and protecting his wife, taking responsibility for his failures as well as his own. But is that what Adam does? No, what happens instead? He follows his wife into sin eating of the forbidden fruit himself. And then they realize they are naked and ashamed. And when God comes in the garden, they hide from him. And when God comes to Adam to question him, Adam doesn't take blame. He passes blame. He says, God, that woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. It's her fault. In other words, don't kill me, kill her. She's the one here who's really worthy of death. Instead of dying for her, he blames her. Instead of dying for her, he shoves her forward and exposes her to judgment. It's like he wants to use her as a shield. He wants to put his wife between himself and the judgment of God. And again, you see Adam's effeminacy. Adam is sinking even further into effeminacy and softness here. And I'll tell you this, guys. It's no wonder at least some women have a really hard time trusting us as men. Because this is part of our legacy. You see what happened there in Genesis chapter 3. The complete and colossal failure of manhood. But think about what Adam does there and now contrast that with Jesus. Take the story of the fall and compare that to the story of the gospel. The first Adam loved himself. The second Adam, Christ, loved his bride. The first Adam blamed his bride. The second Adam took the blame for his bride. The first Adam did not crush the serpent's head. He failed to be violent, to fight, to guard, to protect. The second Adam crushed the serpent's head. He fought, he guarded, he protected, he defended. And so men, here's the question. What kind of man will you be? An effeminate man like Adam? Or a real man like Jesus? Will you be a soft man or a hard man? a fake man, or a real man? Will you act like a man or not? Will you act like Jesus or like Adam? Which story are you going to live by? The story of the fall or the story of the gospel? Will you be selfish or will you be sacrificial? Will you blame others or will you take responsibility? Will you protect and provide, not just for yourself, Adam only cared about protecting and providing for himself, but will you protect and provide for others like Jesus? In a fallen world, the only true manhood is manhood in Christ. Christ was a good man. He was a perfect man. But he was also good at being a man. In Christ, both of those come together. He was a man's man, as we say, the model of true manhood. I don't really have a definition of manhood that I'm really satisfied with. Maybe this could be a working definition, so I'll give this to you. The essence of manhood is a man using his masculine traits of dominance, aggression, courage, competitiveness, problem solving, and so forth, in sacrificial ways for the good of others, especially those under his covenant headship, to protect them and provide for them. And guys, I'll tell you this. If you will learn to be like Jesus in his manhood, protecting and providing tough and tender, strong and wise, driven and compassionate, if you'll develop discipline and skills and a work ethic, if you'll develop self-control and self-discipline, if you'll become a competent leader and a sacrificial servant, I'll tell you, then you will be toxic. You'll be toxic, all right. You'll be a toxic man, but you'll be toxic to Satan. You will crush the heads of all the serpents that enter your garden. Do those things, and as Rudyard Kipling says in his poem, at the conclusion, then, what's more, you'll be a man, my son. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for giving us Jesus. Because our first Adam, the first man, failed, we needed a new man to come and live out perfect manhood, perfect masculinity for us. We thank you Jesus has done it. And now I pray for the young men in this room that in union with Jesus, they would grow into true manhood themselves, that they would reflect all these manly qualities of Jesus, that they would live out true masculinity as protectors and providers using their masculine traits for the good of others to build your kingdom, a godly civilization. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.